foolish, foolish. Christians must be witless, brainless, no common sense, or perhaps they're just plain dumb. The things they believe, no one rises from the dead, and to claim that there was one, just one exception, is in itself proof that there are no exceptions. To claim to know my death is not final, that's foolish. Who can know that? To claim my life is not futile? Of the vast majority of the 7 billion people on earth right now, who among them is going to have any lasting impact 100 years from now? Foolish. And to suggest, to suggest that pain and suffering is anything but heartache and fruitlessness, well, that's foolish. What things these Christians believe. Life itself refutes these beliefs. How can they be so foolish? It's no wonder that we're called foolish. After all, we teach that Jesus Christ, the world's Savior, was helplessly crucified as a criminal. That alone is a stumbling block, a foolishness that offends nonsense for the world. But remember, dear brothers and sisters, the foolishness of God is wiser than mere human intellect, and the weakness of God is stronger than mere human strength. Let's draw on that strength. Will you pray with me? May the word that you've spoken to us this morning, Father, and the lessons that we've just heard, may they be heard again in the words that I share by your Spirit, guide our thoughts as we reflect on your word so that we may come to know your wisdom and the power, the power for living in this foolish world. In Jesus' name, amen. St. Paul, in his first letter to the church at Corinth, seems to be stuck on this one point. Why is it that God uses foolish things to confound the wise. Why does God use those who are marginal and even cast away to upset the status quo? Why does God use those who are weak to defeat the strong? Well, he uses these things to startle us, to break the mold of conventional thinking, to get us to see things in a, a new light, a new way, his way. Because the way the world thinks, the way we're inclined to think, well, it's broken. And God even uses pain and suffering to reveal wholeness and purpose. <laughs> Talk about an upside-down concept. After all, when we struggle with pain, when we suffer, it doesn't feel anything like wholeness. It's usually the opposite. It wears us down. It breaks through our defenses. It demoralizes us. We don't know what's up, what's down. We're raw. We have no reserves. All we long for is relief. So the world says that's not good. It should be avoided at all costs. In fact, any kind of suffering, well, it's just too much. Take driving, for instance. I can't even bear to suffer the two seconds it costs me 
when somebody cuts in front of me. I get indignant waiting for a line to open up at the store. Or what about eating? Too many of us are overweight because dieting and exercise, well, that's too much hardship. That's too much pain. Yet even the world recognizes that something strange can happen with suffering. We even have a phrase for it. When people say, no pain, no gain, they claim that hard work and muscle ache and mental stress result in a reward. It's the principle of deferred benefits. Pay the price now to enjoy a better future. Stop buying Starbucks now and save the money for a bigger TV. Give up a Saturday and help, help your school build a playground. But that concept assumes suffering has this defined period, a beginning and an end. You overstress muscles and joints, and they don't get stronger. They break down. Relentless stress, and we suffer depression. So what are we supposed to do when suffering is forced on us? What are we supposed to do with extensive and unremitting suffering when health fails, like cancer or stroke or injury, when we face this lack of ability, when life is cruel? We instinctively know, we know deep in our hearts, there shouldn't be any suffering. The world around us tells, that, tells us that, that suffering reduces the quality of life and we should relieve such suffering because lying helpless in a bed supposedly robs us. One extreme would say that we best ease the life of someone who is suffering by helping them take their life, that somehow there is no dignity in being served being cared for. That while there is a dignity to care for someone, apparently there's no dignity in suffering. Yet, we see some people thrive despite amazingly difficult circumstances. Some of them are even bold enough to claim that they would not change a moment of their suffering because of the change the suffering has brought into their life. Why? Why are they able to say such a thing? And what am I supposed to say to you this morning? Here I am in front of you today. I've not experienced that type of unrelenting suffering. It could be that, most, that for most of us here, the most common denominator that we, we have in suffering is that today is April 15th and taxes are due. Some of us, our back aches because we've been sitting too long now or that when we do stand up, our knees won't cooperate and funny sounds come out of our mouth. That's authentic for me. But I can share with you what I've witnessed that God our Savior uses our weaknesses, uses the weaknesses of people to display his own strength. And it turns things upside down. I've witnessed the recent suffering of debilitating heart failure in our sister here. 
Milda Thompson, whose funeral was Friday. I saw that also for my mom, who died last fall, my father-in-law, who preceded her. This week, I also witnessed the end of a long 15-year battle with cancer and suffering for my son-in-law's stepmom. And I've watched the consequences of pain and heartache in my aunt, who while she was in emergency surgery to remove her kidney, her husband left her and two young boys flying off for a divorce in Vegas. Yet in each of these stories, there is a common person who took, who took that awful pain and needless suffering and brought something beautiful out of it. For each one of them, it was Jesus. And while I believe God didn't make them suffer just so they could produce beautiful fruit, he did defeat their despair. He did defeat their suffering. They each, each lived in confident hope. A confidence that this pain, this loss that they carried was for just a matter of time. That God's love does wind and death is no more and tears are wiped away and there is no more crying, no more pain. In their suffering, Jesus gave them endurance and endurance gave them strength and their strength produced a confident hope of salvation. And it does not lead to disappointments. It is not futile. They saw the reality, the reality of what they are now experiencing. And I witnessed that in their life and in their death. But the Bible says that the audience for that type of faith is even larger. That angels and even demons witness that miracle every day. But it can look foolish. Some ask, why, why put up with all that suffering? Better to curse God and die, as Job heard in the middle of all his troubles. And yet, and yet while suffering was never the life God intended for them, suffering never diminished the life, the eternal life that he kept for them. Now, now, don't misunderstand me. Suffering is not a good thing. It is not something we should seek out or something we should enjoy and never something we inflict. Suffering is the result of pain. And pain is a signal that something is wrong, wrong with the universe, that sin entered and broke our world. Yet God remains greater than suffering. And through it, we can know him in a profound, life-changing way. One personal testimony to this. This is Johnny Erickson Tata. I sank into a deep depression, Johnny said. In her book, The God I Love, Johnny speaks of that depression and suffering, and she talks about her tortured spiritual journey. These are her words. I knew once again, she writes, that I was on the brink of another feel-sorry-for-Johnny day. 
Yet I couldn't let this take me down the grim, anxious road to depression. I realized I was sliding deeper and deeper into the same miry pit that I'd thrown myself into time and time again where there was no light or air where all those demons lived. I would frantically crawl up the sides of that pit, begging God to rescue me, to keep me from hitting rock bottom where I knew I would lose my sanity, lose my grip on reality altogether and be swallowed by my demons. <laughs> Yet the reality of life at the top of the pit, well, that was almost as frightening. There was the wheelchair. There was a life without my hands and legs of not feeling anything below my shoulders, of having people blow my nose and wipe my backside. All that was horrible. Please, dear God, I pleaded, come rescue me. I know you can. Maybe, I would think, maybe I've, I've learned the lessons that God wanted to teach me through this. I'm doing okay in this wheelchair. The suicidal thoughts are, are gone. Depression comes less frequently. I'm a bit more patient, and, and hey, I think I'm doing pretty well without the use of my hands. And I kept thinking about those promises in the Bible. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Maybe God's, maybe God's waiting for me, waiting for me to turn my back on my wish for a healthy body, to turn my back on wanting to be healed. And then there was this verse from Isaiah. By his wounds, by Jesus' wounds, we are healed. I knew my condition wasn't a matter of not having faith or not believing hard enough. I knew it wasn't a problem with God's power or ability to miraculously heal what God of compassion wouldn't want to heal a young person in a wheelchair? No. It had to be something much deeper within me. In the middle of this depressive episode, Johnny was visited by a Christian friend named Steve who shared with her these verses from Philippians 3, 8 and 10. Please read them with me. What is more... I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. To know Christ to share in his sufferings. Steve told her, Johnny, those who know God best are the ones who share in his sufferings. And Johnny said, Steve, no wonder he has so few friends. Steve laughed. But he explained how he could see her wheelchair was chipping away at all her rocks of resistance, her pride and independence. 
It was peeling away all of her self-sufficiency and strength and instead was driving her to the cross. It was exposing what the world says is necessary for happiness and success. And considering that this world never keeps its promises, considering that it will always disappoint us, perhaps this wheelchair, he said, is not a bad thing. Johnny writes, that rang true. So often I had dared not to believe my wheelchair could be a passport to joy. Instead, I, I chose to resign myself to my situation, resign myself to my condition. And my heart always seemed to get a little harder. You will never accept your wheelchair, Steve said. You'll never adjust or cope or even yield or submit to it. And Johnny said there's this lump now in her throat. He had stated what she hadn't wanted to admit. But where was he going? And Steve whispered, but you can embrace God. Johnny finishes her story. I experienced the sweetest, most precious, most intimate union with Jesus Christ, she said. It sounds just like what we said together a few moments ago, doesn't it? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him. Suffering, pain, anguish, and despair were never intended to be part of a human life. God did not choose to place that sorrow on anyone, but for one exception. And then God chose him who knew no sin to be sin. God chose him who knew no suffering to bear all our sorrows, our weaknesses, our wounds. God chose Jesus. And he was pierced. He was crushed. He was beaten and whipped. And he was punished, not for his sake, but for our sin. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him, to cause him grief, and when Jesus saw all that was accomplished by his anguish, he was satisfied. <laughs> Who can believe it, Isaiah says. And if Jesus had not known suffering, how could we know him? How could we trust him? He would be this alien outsider, this alien stranger, always beyond us, incomprehensible. But we do not have a Savior untouched by our troubles. Rather, he is shared fully in all that we experience, all that we are exposed to every day of our life. And we can turn to him. He knows us. The cross appears so foolish to those who don't understand, but the cross is the most amazing example of God's power over suffering. We watch Jesus 
turned over to the utmost misery. We see him die, just like we will. And then he's buried, just as we will be. Yet what seems like foolish defeat becomes exactly what we need. He's a sacrifice made for our sin and the sins of the world. And this broken, suffering world is redeemed, is fixed. The end of our battle with suffering is resurrection, his resurrection. And now our resurrection. This is our sure and certain, our confident hope. We can know Christ in his resurrection. So comfort one another with these words, Paul urges us. Here is comfort for all our troubles so we can comfort others. As Jesus promises, he has overcome the world and its sorrows and he is with you always. And when we are troubled, we have this comfort that God gives us. And when our family Our friends, our neighbors, those we work with, our dear brothers and sisters here, when they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort our Lord has given us. This is not foolishness. It is real. And may the peace of God guide your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.